Hi there, and welcome to Vet Club. Uh, this will be a, a journal club student edition. I think this is now the third one, um, the, the third journal club that we're doing on this new series. And apologies for not having the music. I'll ask Topher later, but he usually is like, nah, I'm not gonna add it. So it'll just be no intro music. Um, but excited to welcome back um, Haley Hickson, who is here at a recent journal club and new guest, uh, St uh, Scott Thornton. So welcome Haley and Scott, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So for this journal club, um, you know, for those listening, what I do is I usually kind of throw options out there to whoever signs up, like, hey, is there something in particular you wanna talk about? Or do you have an article? Or just give me, give me things you're interested in. And Scott had mentioned that you're, you're interested in GDV for a variety of reasons. Um, one, you like surgery. Two, you have Newfoundlands, right? Yes, correct. I, I have two of them. Yeah, and so you, you think about GDV um, partly because you're a, a Newfoundland dad. Um, and so I threw out several articles to the two of you and you guys were like, let's do all of them, um, which I love. So, so that's where we are. So the focus today is going to be on GDV. And so I picked a, a few recent-ish articles, some are more recent than others. Um, and a couple of things that I, you know, I have my own ulterior motives. Um, I wanted to talk about lactate and lactate and prognostication because that comes up a lot when we talk about GDV. And then, um, and so we have two articles that really focus on um, the, the lactate side of things. Um, and then another one that I came across, which is a fairly recent-ish uh, article, which is um, essentially evaluating a specific procedure for gastropexy, which I thought was pretty interesting and not something I'd come across before. So, um, so that's what we're going to get into. And you guys kind of divided them up a little bit. Um, and I don't remember how you guys divided them up. So um, you can, you can tell me. So we're going to start, I think, with the, um, <clears throat> the first article, which is by um, Grossado and, uh, and colleagues, and it's entitled Pre and Post-Surgical Evaluation of Plasma Lactate Concentration in 45 Dogs with Gastric Dilatation Volvulus, a Preliminary Study. And this was published, now I can't remember what journal this was. Um, if you remember, say so. You remember what journal this was? Why isn't it not in the top? Should be right there. You guys don't remember either. Anyway, um, that's it. You can find the title and I will um, uh, certainly, um, you guys can still hear me, right? Yes, it can. I was yep. just trying to look for the- uh, Okay, the, my Zoom um, is telling me my speaker's not working and I don't really know why, so. But if you guys can hear me, I'm gonna assume that it's still being recorded. <laughs> okay. Oh, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom's totally my favorite. Um, all right, so who had that article? Which of you guys had? the pre and post surgical evaluation of plasma lactate in the 45 dogs. That was myself. Okay, I was gonna say, nobody's claiming, oh crap, did I? Did yes, I get yes, right, no, no. <laughs> uh, all right, Scott, so that, I know you guys read all of them, both of you did, but Scott, yes, you were we focusing more on this one. So do you want to start by just giving a brief overview? You don't have to go into a lot of detail, but just give an overview of kind of what was the point of the article? What, what did they do? What, what did they find? And then we can get into the details as much as we want. Sure. Um, yeah, it was a, a study that was done actually overseas uh, in Italy, and um, they were trying to um, evaluate the reliability of this plasma lactate concentrate uh, PLC uh, as a uh, predictive and prognostic factor for gastric necrosis. 
and what clinical it could uh, be prognostic for clinical outcome of dogs affected with GDV. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been several studies done on this in the past, yep. but it seems like there's been a lot of high uh, variability between the results. So um, this was yet, I guess, an, another case of a, it was a retrospective study done in 2019, another case where they're trying to figure out whether or not PLC was a good prognostic indicator or not. Um, it was based on uh, uh, 45 dogs, like you had said, yep. Yep. Um, from uh, in Italy. And it's retrospective. They're looking at cases where that supporting structures of, of RADs, uh, abdominal explorations, and uh, certainly uh, PLC uh, measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're looking at both uh, T0 at time of admission, 24 hours, and 48 hours post. Yeah. And that's what makes this study a little different. I don't know how much um, you got into the other studies. I know that the one we're going to talk about in a little bit was a review, um, but that was a little bit different in this study versus some of the other ones. They followed it out much later, where a lot of them are looking preoperatively um, in that, you know, sometimes just once preoperatively, sometimes serially preoperatively or in that perioperative period, um, but typically not following them out postoperatively very long. Um, and so that was what was a little bit different about this one versus the other ones. Uh, but as you said, Scott, like there's a lot of variability. So it's always good. Repetition is good. 45 dogs is not that many. Um, right. So, you know, if we get 100 studies of 45 dogs, then we can start to say, all right, let's put this together. Um, so what was the main take home? Like, what did you, what did you, what was our takeaway? Um, the main thing was <laughs> uh, that they really felt that it was not as prognostic as they had hoped, I guess. Um, is that there was no significant um, difference was detected at the PLC at T0 and um, also at T24 and 48. Um, And that was to prognosticate either outcome or the presence of gastric necrosis, right? That's correct, either or. Um, So they kind of concluded that um, they felt that it was really not a good prognostic um, reliability, and they felt that really the more prognostic, there's a better way to go about it was through exploratory laparotomy. Yeah, take them to surgery, see what happens. Take them to surgery, right, and take a look around, see if you see gross necrosis. Um, Because they did, one thing that I I saw that was interesting, said when they found macroscopic gastric wall necrosis, um, 29% 29% of the animals that they had in the study did have macroscopic necrosis, um, and only 33% of those survived to discharge. Yeah. So it seems like once there's necrosis, it, it, there's a serious, serious problem. Yeah, um, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more in the next study, which um, reviews a number of these. But um, so what's, what's your take then, Scott? Like, should we be measuring lactate? Should we, should we use it at all? You know, it, it seemed to me like kind of, uh, you know, it can't hurt. It, it's another, it's another indicator. Um, you might as well, I would, I would probably still do it yeah. um, just to have, have another thing to look at just to say, all right, this is something else saying, Hey, maybe there's a chance or geez, now we have to couch our, our thoughts a little bit that maybe it's not going to turn out so well. 
Yeah. Um, so if you get a lactate and it's normal, what are you going to tell the clients? I'm going to say there's, you know, there's hope, but there's still, you know, there's still significant risk here. You know, yeah. that, that like we, we just don't know. Yeah. yeah. We, we, we don't know how it's going to turn out. We should still be going forward with surgery. We should still be, you know, taking a look around and looking grossly to see if we see anything. Um, yeah. But at least it's giving us some hope. Uh, and even in the reverse side of things, I think I would say, you know, if there's really high lactate, I'd probably say, yeah, it's not the greatest thing to see, but it's not also a death sentence, you know, that we can still go in, let's go through this, let's see what we can see. It's just another indicator of, of how things could potentially go. Yeah. So I think that's, a, that's an awesome overview. Um, and we'll talk in more detail about some of this stuff, I promise you, because um, it's things that are important to me. What did you think in general about the study? Like, do you have any specific comments on like their methods or how they reported it? You know, what did, what did you think? And, and you um, feel free to chime in, Haley. I know you, you read this too. Yeah, and, and from the, the amount of these that I've done so far, it, it seemed to me was done fairly well. Um, you know, again, it's a small sample, but almost all these things are small samples. It's just not the, the funding that, that human med has. So uh, you're just going to be dealing with, with small groups uh, of, of animals. So um, I didn't see anything in particular that really made me question the results saying, geez, I don't know if this is really reliable study. Um, I thought it was, was pretty, uh, pretty well done myself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a retrospective study, right? So there are limitations with it being retrospective. However, the cool thing about something like GDB, it's a common enough disease and people have gotten like, we have a system, right? We do the same things. We check a lactate, we do these things. And so even though this was retrospective, it, they, they followed these things fairly commonly. So you got pretty consistent results. Like we had a lactate at admission. We had a lactate at 24 and 48 hours. Um, and so even though it's technically retrospective, it, it follows along a lot more like a prospective in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And because basically they, um, they weren't doing an intervention, like there wasn't like an intervention group, like one group got this procedure and one group didn't, or in one group we treated them differently based on, it was really, it, it read to me more like a prospective observational study. Um, and again, whenever you have diseases that like are pretty common, they come in and not that every GDV is the same, but there's a predictability to it, right? They come in, they're in varying degrees of shock, the, the treatment is the treatment. Like there isn't like, let's debate on whether or not we want it. No, like we all know what the treatment is. You take them to surgery. Um, there's obviously confounders when you look at like survival and you say, okay, well, you know, 33% uh, survival if they had gastric, you know, gross visible gastric necrosis while somebody be like, well, what about their, you know, the surgical technique or the experience of the surgeon or their post-operative care? Like you can, you can, you know, um, discuss all of that. But as far as, um, uh, you know, the presence of gastric necrosis. Um, again, it's retrospective. So you're relying a little bit, did somebody document it? Um, but if there wasn't documentation of, you know, invagination or gastric resection, like this is a pretty good chance, you know, hopefully the records are pretty complete. Um, so it's not the kind of thing we're like, eh, probably there's a bunch of gastric necrosis that people just didn't document. Like, no, that's the kind of thing people are going to mention. So the, the questions they had, and as far as like big picture, gastric necrosis, yes or no, survival, yes or no. Um, I, I think it was 
pretty conducive to a retrospective study. So I do think this was was helpful. Um, the fact that you know we didn't get clear distinction between um, you know one group or another group, or there was an obvious cutoff for lactate is not surprising, um, especially given what we'll, we'll talk about in the, in the next article. But yeah, I agree. I thought it was a really well done study. It adds useful information to um, our body of literature on this. Is it dramatically going to change what we do? Pro probably, probably not. not. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable. Um, so yeah, I agree. I thought it was, I thought it was a well, a well done study. And so now that we've kind of gone into that one, maybe we can put into perspective um, you know, this, this article in context of a lot more articles by discussing the review article. Um, so Haley, you're going to be up. I'm assuming this was the article you chose, right? Um, yes, this is okay. the one that I had. Yeah. So this is by um, Mooney and colleagues, and this is mm -hmm. a, a review from Topics in Companion Animal Medicine. And the title is Plasma Lactate Concentration as a Prognostic Biomarker in Dogs with GDV. So this one, again, very different um, versus the last one, which was retrospective. This was a review article. So give us a, a summary of this one, Haley. Yeah, so I thought this was a really good article to very complimentary to what Scott did. And honestly, for me, it was a really good review too on especially the biochemistry of lactate and honestly, just a really good review that I think will be very helpful using. Oh, if you like lactate. that part of it, uh, I have, I have some other articles I'll send you on just lactate. <laughs> if you have <laughs> yeah, no, perfect. Um, so the authors, um, so this is a review article, uh, kind of spanning the literature and looking at really the use of plasma or plasma lactate as a prognostic marker for dogs with GDB and what reports are available on that. So they start, it's just giving up basic introduction on GDV and the use of plasma um, and kind of what some of the current literature is saying. Um, they next, they go into more of the biochem and the physiology of lactate. And I'm not sure how much of that I should go into here. Um, but um, I think it's great that they did that because I think before we understand like how we could potentially use lactate as a prognostic marker, you need to understand where it's coming from and why it's being generated. Because I think if you don't understand that, then trying to apply that is just going to kind of limit what you're able to, to really understand and do with that. Okay. Question. Um, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Yes. Was this the yeah. first time you had heard about type A and type B hyperlactosemia? Yes. I don't know yeah. about Scott, but that was I definitely figured. the first yes. for me. Yeah. For me I too. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. I spent a little time on that because I, I did yeah. not realize that. So yeah, it's it's one yeah. of those things that um, we don't spend a lot of time teaching because honestly, most of the time you're dealing with type A, and that's what I that's mm -hmm. what as an instructor, like I want you to get out there. I want you to think about type A, um, but mm -hmm. it is there are situations where it's like um, this one might not actually fit. Um, and so briefly, briefly, can you explain the difference between, very briefly, between type A and type B um, hyperlactosemia? Yes. So basically it's whether or not you have evidence, clinical evidence of um, tissue oxygen deficiency. So with type A, you do have that clinical evidence and the authors mentioned that it can be a relative or absolute deficiency of oxygen. Um, and then type B is when you have an absence of that <coughs> clinical evidence. Um, and then there's three different subclassifications of uh, different causes that can lead to elevated lactate. Um, but again, you don't have that clinical evidence of it. 
Um, and so, yeah, that was totally news to me. I did not know that there were these categories. Um, not, not to go that. too far down that rabbit hole, but it's important to note because there are a number of diseases that have been um, demonstrated in veterinary medicine. There are a number of publications of diseases that have been shown to be associated with a type B hyperlactatemia, meaning their perfusion parameters are fine. We've corrected for all these things and we don't think this is um, a, a poor tissue oxygenation issue. And yet the hyperlactatemia persists. And, and that becomes important because if you're always just like assuming elevated lactate is a perfusion problem, which is a fair assumption. But if you're like, you're like, okay, but it's not getting better. It's not getting better. Um, there, there are situations where you go, yeah, it's probably going to hang out around three, four, maybe five, if they have one of these, you know, no diseases. So it is an important thing to, to note, but I still mm -hmm. think the most important, if you see an elevated lactate, the first thing you should think of is tissues are not getting oxygen. Perfusion is likely the problem. Um, so, mm -hmm. but it is, it is important to know that. And so when we're talking about GDV, we're talking about type A hyperlactatemia, right? Um, but it mm -hmm. is important to make that distinction. Okay, cool. Good job. So lactate is a prognostic indicator. What's, what's the take home from this review article? Like what, what was your sense um, after reading this? So I think the authors of this report are in support of its use, but using it cautiously and not the end all be all when you're trying to give advice to owners. Um, especially those who might be on the fence about what to do. Um, because the point that they note is whether you have high or low lactate, you have exceptions across the board. And some patients who survive might have had really high lactates and then the opposite. And so their final recommendations for actual numbers for what to use as, as guide, guides, um, that plasma lactates of less than four, um, that survival is more likely and complications are less likely. And then a plasma lactate of greater than six millimoles per liter means the gastric necrosis and then hospital expenses and so forth are going to be more likely. But they stressed um, kind of like, I think this was mentioned with Scott, that exploratory laparotomy should always be pursued um, just to actually identify if gastric necrosis is there. Um, because it, it seems that using plasma lactate to actually guide whether or not you think there is necrosis is just not a reliable measure as, you know, something like actually going in and using your eyes and hands and seeing. And so um, I think this paper is in report or in support of using it, but, you know, not as the end all be all for yeah. guiding therapeutics. So what do you, what do you think? Like, how would you use lactate? Um, you have a animal with GDV. What are you going to, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to run it? You're going to run a lactate? I think I am. Yes. Especially, okay. you know, taking into consideration financial restraints that some owners might have, if, you know, mm -hmm. if surgery is really going to be a financial expense, that's going to really take a toll on the family. Uh -huh. Um, and you need something that's a little more reliable than just things you're going to maybe get on your physical or, you know, maybe basic diagnosis, like a CBC chem. Um, I think it'd be really useful in, in those times, especially when, you know, families don't just have money to just spend towards what, you know, not, not the most costly surgery, but definitely not cheap. Right. Um, especially depending on where you're at. So, um, I think getting an initial plasma lactate, if it's within reason, um, I think I, I'm for it. Um, now whether I think it's necessary to get it at post 24 hours, 48 hours. Um, I think if you've already gone to surgery, I think it makes more sense to just kind of 
see how the patient's doing and maybe monitor from there. Um, Cause I'm, I'm not really sure what the cost of collecting a lactate even costs to About be honest. $10 in our hospital. Oh, okay. Well, you it's know, pretty cheap. Maybe if you have a patient then, and they're kind mm-hmm. of iffy at post-op yeah, yeah, and you want another measure to maybe kind of gauge how they're doing and you've already done the surgery and you just really figure out maybe what, whether they're making good progress or declining, I think getting it then, but, um, I don't know if I think cereal plasma mm-hmm. lactates are necessary other than for something like this, like for studies that are being performed at like a university or so. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to chime in. So I'm going to, just since we're recording this, okay, this was the most important paragraph in the whole paper. Okay. So for those of you that are just listening and didn't see that the most important paragraph in this, this article was under the heading plasma lactate concentration as a prognostic indicator. And it's the one, two, three, the fourth paragraph. This is the most important one. Okay. So most veterinary studies show that the population of animals that die has a higher average lactate concentration than the population of animals that survive. Okay. Yet, and you already said this, Haley, some animals that survive had a high lactate and some animals that die had a low or even normal lactate. Okay. You cannot use a prognostic indicator to predict what an individual patient is going to do. That's the most important thing I want everybody to remember when it comes to prognostic indicators, full stop. You cannot use them to predict an individual. They're great at predicting populations, right? So if we say, you know, 80% of dogs with a lactate greater than six are going to have gastric necrosis. I I made that up. I, I, that's, I don't think any study said that, but if you, if you say that, then you go cool. But what about the 20% of the dogs that don't, right? You, you, you can't have, like, you can't say there's an 80% chance that this dog has gastric necrosis. That's meaningless. This dog either has gastric necrosis or it doesn't. Right. And we don't have a test that's going to say with hundred percent accuracy, it does, or it doesn't like it does not exist. And so there is a real danger in, in my opinion, there's a real danger in trying to use lactate to predict whether an individual is going to survive or die or whether or not they're going to have a particular finding. Okay. So again, you can say, look like, Hey, the odds are that, you know, this is going to happen. But like, as Scott, as you said earlier, like you got to go to surgery, the end. And if you can't do surgery, you got to euthanize. Like those are your, you have two options with a GDV and those are them. There is no in between. And, and I, I, I think you have to be really, really careful in using this information to um, guide decision-making because we euthanize animals, right? And so if we make a decision to euthanize an animal based on a prognostic indicator like this, I think that's very dangerous. Now, as you had, had um, you know, discussed Haley, if people don't, they can't afford treatment or something like that. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. This is going to be costly. Um, and it's going to be costly no matter what. Um, but the mm-hmm. prognosis is potentially quite good. Now I'm going to go back to you for a second, Scott. I want to ask, do you remember when you were reading your article um, when they talked about the survival rate, particularly with the dogs with gastric necrosis, did they differentiate dogs that died naturally versus dogs that were humanely euthanized? Do you remember? They did. I did not summarize though what the actual numbers were. No, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the numbers were because yeah. if you euthanize a dog because it has gastric necrosis, then of course the survival goes down for dogs with gastric necrosis, right? Like if you get into surgery and you see a bunch of gastric necrosis and then you call the owner and you say, Hey, 
this is going to be more expensive. <clears throat> there are going to be new complications. There's going to be this. And then they decide to euthanize. There's a danger in applying that statistic even to a population, right? Like if you're prognosticating based on, like we made the decision based on the thing we're, we're prognosticating about and we decided to euthanize, you kind of have to throw those numbers out. Like I, I think they should report the numbers separately. Here's the total survival, right? Including euthanasias. And here's what it is if we exclude the euthanasias. Because they make that point, um, and I, I can't remember uh, again in the, in the retrospective that we talked about, but in several of these studies, if you look at the number of animals, the, the survival rates are really low if they have gastric necrosis, mm -hmm. but like 70% mm -hmm. of them get euthanized. Mm -hmm. So what would happen if mm -hmm. we tried? Now it's possible that some of those have such severe gastric necrosis that there's, you can't resect the whole stomach. And I get that, but th we don't usually tease it out to that degree, right? <laughs> and there are mm -hmm. some studies at some institutions where the survival is like 70%, even if they have gastric necrosis, then it's 85, 90%. And so guess what? Mm -hmm. If you have a surgeon who's like, yeah, I'm totally comfortable doing this gastric resection and we can sort this out. And, you know, they have a, a, a super awesome ICU staff that can keep these patients. You're like, who knows? Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think there's a, a danger in basing a prognostic indicator test on results where we euthanize patients. Um, and again, I, I'm for euthanasia as an option. Like I, I'm not saying that those animals shouldn't have been euthanized or that that was inappropriate. That's not what I'm saying at all, but I'm saying there's a danger in how we interpret that because 100% of the patients that I've euthanized have died, right? Like I know mm -hmm. that sounds ridiculous, but, um, but we've, we've created a, a separate group. And I think we have to be really, really careful about that. And the point of prognostic numbers are very good at predicting population results is so important because it's so tempting. We want to be able to prognosticate. We want to be able to say, is this patient in front of me going to die or not? But mm -hmm. statistics can't apply to an individual. You can't apply a population statistic to an individual because 80% dying means 20% survive. And what if the patient in front of me is one of the survivors? Um, so that's for me the, the danger. Now there's a couple mm -hmm. other things that I think we can use lactate for we can use it in a, in a safer, more useful way. And if we remember, as you were saying, Haley, to go back to like, what's the physiology behind this? Like, why is it elevated? And if we can use that <laughs> to guide our therapy and say, Hey, lactate came in at 12 and we've resuscitated and it's come down to three, like, boom, let's get into the OR right now. Like we, this is as stable as we're likely to get this animal or mm -hmm. in that post-operative or in the periop, whatever, if the lactate's not dropping, we need to figure out why, like, okay, we need to get into the OR, explore, look really hard for necrosis, or is there a thrombus somewhere? Like maybe not just the spleen, is something else thrombosed? Is that impacting things? Or in the post-operative period, do we have a secondary sepsis? Like, what do we think is going on? And we need to investigate that. So using that mm -hmm. as far as like resource allocation and deciding I need to spend more time, effort, money into figuring this out. I think that's where lactate can be really helpful. And so as you mm -hmm. were kind of hinting at Haley, you know, if the patient's doing great postoperatively, maybe I don't really need a lactate. Maybe it's not as useful, but if they're not doing that well, then it can be helpful diagnostically to say, can I point my concerns in one particular direction? Is, is, it, is that helpful in those regards? Um, yeah, and I think, Connor, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you commented on that, um, that, that paragraph in particular, because I noticed that they had italicized populations and, um, 
I knew that that meant that that was important. So I was trying to um, determine what their main conclusion of that was. But something else I had highlighted from that paragraph was that they specified that the magnitude of the increase in lactate reflects the severity of its production. So tissue hypoxia in most cases, but not its reversibility. Not its reversibility. Yeah. And so there was, um, so one of the first kind of landmark studies about uh, lactate and GDV said like higher lactate is associated um, with a worse survival in that population. And then they were like, here's this cutoff and people were like, okay, if their lactate's above 6.7, then they're probably going to die. And it was like, whoa, 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 that's not, that's not the response we should get. Um, like we should not be using it. We should still be resuscitating them and taking them to surgery. And then another study came out several years later looking at serial lactate and the change in lactate. And what they found was the absolute lactate was not that predictive of what their outcome was going to be. But if it, it dropped really well, even if it started out super high, if it dropped really nicely by like 50% or more, that was a good prognostic indicator. And if it didn't, even if it was low, if it started out at three, but it stayed at three, that was a, a poor prognostic indicator. Um, again, still have to look at the population. Um, but so it's, it's not as clear cut as we'd like it to be. We would love to have a test to say there's a cutoff and say, if the lactate's above this, there's no way your dog's going to survive. Don't spend $4,000 or whatever it's going to cost, but it just doesn't exist. Um, but what we do know is this is a binary situation. A dog um, has GDV, it needs surgery or it needs humane euthanasia. Those are the only two treatment options that are reasonable at this day and age. Mm -hmm. Like maybe somebody will come up with something medical later, but we're not there. Um, and, and it's okay if people decide to euthanize because it is, it's a life-threatening illness that can be expensive, but it can have a really good prognosis. Um, you know, most animals will do very well. And, um, so that's kind of why I wanted to, you know, really drive this home because I think there's a danger. There's a temptation to want to <laughs> make recommendations. Um, and you know, they, I, I would push it even further than they did in this article. They were like, it's okay to kind of use it here. And I'm like, Ooh, that even that makes me uncomfortable, honestly. Um, I think you should, you diagnose a GDV and you should say the treatment is surgery. These are the possible complications. If your dog has severe gastric necrosis, it's possible that it won't be something I can resect surgically. And we may have to make a decision to euthanize on the table. If there is gastric necrosis, it's probably going to increase the rate of complications and it may increase the cost. And so you need to know about that. There is no way for me to definitively predict right now whether or not that's gonna happen, whether or not your dog has this or that. Um, it, but this is where we are. Um, and I, I think you just need to prepare everybody regardless of the lactate or whatever other things you find. Um, because you just don't know until, as you said, Scott, you get in and look around. You got to get in and look around. Um, and the beauty is to treat them. You got to get in and look around and then fix Like it's, a, you know, surgically, you can confirm everything you want to see visually, and then you get to fix it, um, which is also, you know, the fun part. But these can be really, really rewarding. Um, and I get that they're expensive. And so you have to have that conversation um, because, you know, <laughs> it's not 100% survival, but it's pretty darn good. We've gotten pretty good. At, at treating GDV and, and getting to them and, and having good success with that. So you just, again, lactate can be useful as a, as a tool, as a clinician to help kind of guide, like, okay, I'm so worried about this. What is this telling me? Do I need to up my resuscitation game? How do I need to adjust things? Um, but I, I really think it's important that we emphasize it should not be used to make recommendations for humane euthanasia or not. Like it just, it, it 
I don't think it should come into the conversation at all um, about like, oh, the lactate's above this, therefore you should consider, like, I don't, I don't think we should talk about it in that way at all. Um, I think they need to know, like, there's a percentage of dogs that aren't going to survive this. There's a percentage of dogs that are going to have this extra complication of gastric necrosis. And <clears throat> if that happens, like, yeah, the prognosis is worse like that. We're, we're pretty, but again, a lot of those dogs survive. Um, it may cost a little bit more in the long run. I don't know. Um, but you need to know about all these things right now before I know for sure what's going on. Um, so I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts? Well, in the uh, question is, uh, they were, they were looking out 48 hours. Um, is there in your experience, a, um, post-operative time window where you kind of feel we've made it past 48 hours. We made it past 72 hours. I feel good that this surgery is is successful. This dog is going to make it. Do you have kind of a I general cutoff say, that you look at? Yeah. If if they didn't if they didn't have to have a gastric resection, I would say if they make it through surgery, it, we're okay. looking pretty good, right? If they had gastric resection, especially if it was like a large amount of uh, of stomach that had to be resected, mm -hmm. then I'm going to be a little. It's going to be like any other GI surgery. Right. Um, so that I'm going to worry in that three to five day window is when the complications are going to be, I'm most worried, like, because you're basing, um, the decision to resect on your visual observations, right? Like that's always a little bit scary. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying, okay, part of this area of stomach looks necrosed. This part looks healthy. When I cut the edge, it was bleeding and I sewed the ends back together. Okay. I'm feeling pretty good, but like that doesn't mean the perfusion, it's like, it's not on its way to dying. Like that's, it's, it's such a subjective thing. And there isn't a perfect way to be like, this is healthy and this is not. Um, so there's always that concern. Anytime you have to have a gastric resection, I always have that little extra concern. Um, but I would say like any other GI surgery um, in the, after that three to five day window, if they, if like they recover in the first couple of days, I'm feeling pretty good. Still kind of, um, you know, waiting for that three to five day window where um, uh, dehiscence is most likely, right? Because the, the sutures are starting to break down already, um, but the tissues haven't fully, fully healed yet. Um, mm -hmm. But once we get past that five days, then yeah. But if I didn't have to resect anything, I'm feeling pretty good if they make it through the surgery. Um, they, do, they tend to do quite well. Now, any of them, regardless of gastric necrosis or any of that, can develop a fatal arrhythmia. They can develop, you know, problems with ischemia reperfusion injury. They can get secondary AKI from the hypovolemia and the, and the shock that they come in. I mean, there are other complications that can certainly arise. Um, but I think in general, if we get to them and we resuscitate them aggressively and get them to surgery quickly, they can do so well. Um, they're just very rewarding. And so it just makes me really sad to think like that there's patients out there that are getting euthanized, not because of finances or because the owners, you know, for, but if it, but it's because we are um, guiding them in a way that I think is probably not appropriate based on the evidence that we have. Um, I've definitely seen plenty of animals that come in. And I think in, in one of the articles, I can't remember that they, they make like a a uh, hypothetical scenario of a patient that could have a terrible lactate and then you fix the problem and they're fine. They're, they're fine. Um, yeah, that was, that was my report. And yeah. from your experience, from how well they do, does that depend on whether or not they also needed a concurrent splenectomy or? Nah, I, okay. I, anecdotally, again, um, I, I think there are some numbers out there that say that if they have to have a concurrent splenectomy, that maybe the um, survival dips a little bit, but Splenectomies are so meh, not a big deal, really, right? Um, now you could, you know, you could make the argument. And again, I don't think we have the studies to look into this, but like 
you know, if you've got a big thrombosis spleen, does that mean that dog was sicker for longer? You know, like what other things are going on? You know, I don't really know. But in my experience, um, anecdotally, I would say whether or not they need a splenectomy doesn't change my like worry threshold. If they did well throughout the procedure and they're doing well now, having had a splenectomy is like, eh, yeah, they also had a splenectomy. Um, I mean, it's going to add a little bit of anesthesia time. You know, there is going to be some more morbidity, but I wouldn't say like, oh boy, that's really going to be bad. Like man, it, does, it doesn't, increase my worry in any real way. And so I know this is a really subjective question too, but having not, I've seen patients present for GDVs, but I haven't seen the surgery side of it. So when you're in there and actually evaluating the layout of the land and seeing how things look, what, I guess like, you know, for some of the surgeons that decided to euthanize intra-op because of necrosis, like when do you know that you have so much that there's really no, you know, it's a no good coming question. back from that? Good question. Scott, do you have any experience going in on these surgeries? Have you seen any of these? I have not. No. Okay. So step one is when you get in there, the first thing you got to do is derotate. Okay. You got to derotate. Um, and that's not, it sounds simple, right? But it's not actually that easy because when you got to get the, your orientation is off, right? Because the, the anatomy is now kind of weird. Um, and most of them are going to be, you know, between a 180 and, uh, degree torsion, but you got to get your, you know, your bearings. Um, and they're also filled with gas. So they're all like jumping out at you and it's just really hard to get your bearings. Um, so sometimes, um, at surgery, um, if you don't already have like a stomach and oral gastric tube passed, I'll ask, you know, like an anesthetist or an assistant to pass an oral gastric tube to relieve a lot more of the gas. And that just helps a ton, but you, as quickly as you can, you want to derotate. Okay. Then you derotate and then you empty as much gas and fluid out of the stomach, get it, shrink it, shrink it back down. And then you're going to explore the rest of the belly. Then you're going to come back and assess the stomach because you need to give that perfusion a chance to kind of come back because stomachs that will look really bad initially can in the time it takes you to do your explore of the rest of the belly can start to look significantly better. So step one is don't assess the viability of the stomach immediately. Okay. Um, now if it looks black and leathery, I'm not going to feel good about that. Um, but I'm still going to do the rest of the explore and then I'm going to come back to that. And if it's still black and leathery, then we have a decision to make. Right. Um, so I can't leave black and leathery. Um, so now I have to assess like where is it black and leathery, right? Like what part of the stomach is, is do I think devitalized? And then what can I do about it? Um, and again, I'm, I'm not a surgeon. Um, there are, so there's gonna be limits to what I'm gonna personally feel comfortable resecting or doing an invagination on. But if it's a small area, which luckily a lot of times it is fairly small in an area that's amenable to resection. Like if it goes all the way down to the cardia and like, I'm like, I can't, I can't that's, that's beyond me. Um, and usually I have the conversation with the clients before I go into the OR that I'm not a board certified surgeon and that there, there could be scenarios that I could encounter a degree of gastric necrosis that I personally can't resect that another surgeon could. Right. And so I give them that mm -hmm. option up front. Like you might have, if you decide you want to, you know, try to go somewhere else or just know that at that point we might have to sew your dog back up and then you transport it to somewhere else. Like we have that conversation of what happens if we, we meet something now there, there could be resections where I'm like, um, you know, maybe some super cowboy rogue surgeons would try for this, but like, this looks really bad. It, it, we just have that conversation ideally, at least in part up front. But a lot of the times in my experience, it's a small area and you can either do an invagination, um, where you basically, you don't cut any of the stomach, but you kind of Assume that this devitalized portion, you're going to fold it in on itself, close that up to healthy bits, and the animal will sort of 
self-digest that bit of stomach that dies, which is sort of gross and a little bit weird, but it's a, it's a, a super reasonable option if you've got a relatively small area to resect. And the nice part is you don't have to cut into the stomach at all, right? So there's not a big risk of inadvertently cutting something you don't want. You're not going to get spillage. And so that's, that's actually something I like to do if it's a small area um, of resection. Um, but you've got to make sure, you know, you feel comfortable doing that. And at the end, you have to have enough stomach left over to Pepsi, right? Um, so you, you've got to, you've got to keep that in mind. But the most important thing to remember is don't assess viability right off the bat. Derotate, explore the rest of the belly and then come back to it. Um, and that's going to be true of like the spleen as well. Like unless the spleen is hemorrhaging and you have to address it more quickly, um, like assess what the viability of the spleen looks like after you've explored the rest of the belly. Um, don't make any of those decisions because once you remove the tissue, then you're done. Um, so be, be sure. Um, and you can always just like take a needle, like a 20 gauge needle and just like poke it into that area of the stomach you're not, you're not sure about and be like, mm, there's no blood. And like, just convince yourself that it really is devitalized. Um, but if it like comes back bleeding, you're like, mm, maybe I'll wait a little bit. Maybe I'll go explore. Let's look at that kidney one more time. I don't know. Um, you know, you don't really want to <laughs> leave devitalized tissue in there but you also don't want to remove tissue that has a chance of surviving. Um, yeah. I mean, and probably be good to get like a, a, a boarded surgeon's input on some of this, but that's, that's my non-surgery um, take on that. Well, thank that's you for providing that clarification. Yeah, no, it did. Um, and you mentioned the imagination. I'm sure we'll get to that when we get to the next um, the next paper, but that was not something that I knew. My surgery knowledge is not extensive. And as Scott knows, I don't have any interest in surgery, but, um, I didn't know that that was even an option. I mean, it makes sense for why it is, but, um, yeah. I just never thought of that before. Yeah. yeah if that tissue dies, the stomach will just digest it. It's weird, but yeah, <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> it's a totally reasonable option. Um, which, yeah, I mean, that's kind of like our segue into the third paper, right? Which is a, a cool one in my um, uh, opinion. This, um, so the third paper that you guys decided you're both gonna read um, and we would all just discuss, which is by um, Form Formagini um, and colleagues and colleague, I guess. Um, so this is a prospective study. This was in uh, JAHA, the Journal of the American Animal Hospital Association. Um, and its title is a prospective evaluation of a modified belt loop gastropexy in hundred dogs with GDV. So we had a retrospective, we had a review, and now we have a prospective. Um, so, all right, who wants to review, who wants to give me the, the scoop on this one? Maybe Scott, since he actually likes surgery. Yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so they were looking specifically at, uh, doing belt loop gastropexies, um, I guess uh, the incisional and um, I think circumcostal are the more likely or the more used surgeries. I think incisional is probably the most common one, I think. Okay. Um, and uh, their thought was um, the belt loop is a little bit more difficult to perform than the incisional, but may result in stronger adhesions. Um, the incisional is a little bit technically simpler and um, may have fewer comp uh, complications, but there's a risk of uh, gastric mucosal perforation. Um, so they wanted to see how well this belt loop gastrostomy, gastropexy would, uh, would yeah. work. And this um, is a modified belt loop. So um, I don't yes. know, yeah. Are you familiar with like the standard belt loop and how this one was different? 
Not entirely. They didn't really go in. I, I understand how yeah. this particular surgery went. Yeah. But they didn't but really I, clarify what was. So if you weren't already. No, I mean, I think it was yeah. basically because of the flap. Yeah. That, that it's a, instead of taking a flap of yeah. the stomach and pulling it through yes. the belt loop, they're pulling they're an actual fold of the entire yeah. stomach through. Yeah. And, and so that's not, what was different about this one. You didn't, they didn't make an incision in the stomach at all. Right, right. Which, okay. which is what's different. From, so that's what makes this particular procedure unique compared to all the rest of them. Um, and so yeah. I, th I thought that was pretty, pretty cool, actually. Um, yeah, it seemed interesting. They said, you know, the two things that I guess they were kind of going at was A, being that it's a full thickness um, fold, it's going to be a little bit stronger than a flap for, for, for holding and dehiscence um, from, you know, the, from the suturing, um, and also possibly less complications because you're not, uh, you're, I guess at least a little less likely yeah. to, um, to perforate the stomach. Yeah, what uh, was interesting to me, the idea of it being stronger, because normally, um, like when you do, for example, an incisional, so you make an incision in the body wall and in the, in the muscle, and then you make an incision in um, the gastric um, serosa um, down to the mucosa, but not to the submucosa. And then you suture those wounds together and then they heal back together. Um, or again, with the original belt loop where again, you basically make an incision in you know two ends of the muscle and then you kind of, um, uh, um, what's the word I want? Bluntly dissect underneath to create that belt loop. And then, as you said, you cut like a flap in the um, serosal surface of the stomach. And then sew that kind of back in place after looping it through that belt loop in this one, you're just pulling it through. And so there's no, um, there's no wound on the, 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 you know, serosal surface of the stomach. And so I'm like, I guess you're just relying on adhesions um, cause eventually the sutures break down. Right. And so I'm like, okay, that's right. fine when the sutures there, but what about when the sutures break down? So I'm assuming, and, and based on their results, they, they must've been getting, um, very good adhesions, but I was, I was a little struck by the, the thought that it might be stronger. Cause I'm like, but you don't have, like you have healthy serosa, which isn't going to react in the same way that if you'd made an incision. So in my head, I was like, but I was always taught, uh, you had to create a wound in the other end so that they would heal together. Yeah. Um, but I'm, uh, presumably by doing it on one side and suturing it that you get enough adhesions. Um, Cause again, they, you know, I mean, I, not to spoil it, but you know, the results were pretty good. Yes, right, right, it, it, it was. Um, so they did this, uh, they, they performed this um, on a hundred different dogs. And I believe I remember, I think it was just two specific surgeons were doing it. Yeah, that's so right. There was. Yeah, there was not a uh, variance in, in the, the way it was being performed. And um, they had a, basically 100% of, of the animals came through yep. and had no, um, at least no GDV right. complications or recurrences. They, they, they're, they're outside problems, but GDV recurrence didn't happen and they did not have complications. So it, it was yeah. pretty strong that this was a, a, a good method of... Uh, yeah. So what is, repair. what is your understanding of the other methods of doing like an incisional or the circumcostal or the traditional belt loop? Like what's the success rate with those and the complication rate with those? Just in general. That's something, sense. I, that, that's something I was going to say is I don't remember if in this report they provided complication rates of other types. And I thought that would have been helpful. Um, but we actually, in our surgery course, I believe it was in our surgery course, we did incisional gastropexies 
at some point in the curriculum on cadavers. Um, and so that one I'm a little more familiar with. I just remember feeling like there wasn't enough space to do what I needed to do. And so trying to imagine doing this one as an alternative, I, again, I just don't understand how there's the space, but again, not surgically inclined over doing here. Doing surgery in a hole. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think is, um, if I'm not mistaken, incisional gastropexy is when you're using the abdominal opening mm -hmm. as part of, uh, I, I, that's where you're doing your fixation. Oh, not in the incision, like your approach, you make a separate incision in the side of the body wall. So same location that they did the belt loop in this one. Um, so you're going to pexy to the right, um, kind of parietal surface, uh, or, uh, yeah. Um, uh, of the inner chest wall, like on the yes. muscle layer. Yep. 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 Yeah. And that's, uh, I agree with Haley when we're doing it, it's like, holy cow, this is kind of difficult. There's not yeah. a lot of space to work in. Cause I thought they mentioned one of them. Maybe it wasn't that, that wasn't named that, uh, where they, um, the pexy was done right to the uh, ventral midline I think incision. And they said, don't do, don't do that. Yeah. I'm yeah. Because sure. down the road, yeah. you could have a problem yeah. with that. Uh, well, and like, what if they ever need another surgery? surgery? Yeah. And exactly. you're just like, but you just cut into the stomach. Whoopsie. Yeah. So that one is like a no no. Um, <clears throat> but the, um, so essentially the gist, and this is, this is what I was taught in school and all the literature that I've seen since and kind of support it here is that pick whatever procedure you want right? It's going to work. It is going to, you know, it, it's going to, the PEXI itself is, is very, like they all have a very, very high success rate. Um, essentially it's going to work. So if you do it correctly, whether it's incisional, circumcostal, belt loop, modified belt loop, it's going to work. The complication rate is low, um, probably at least somewhat related to surgeon's experience, right? So there's something to be said for picking one way of doing it and then doing that one. Because the more you do that procedure, the better you're gonna get at it and the lower your complications are likely to be. Um, what I like about this one and the reason like they needed to publish this is because it's different, right? Like it's a modification of one of the, the previously described methods. And so you kind of do need to prove to me um, that that is a good one to choose if you're gonna choose that. And I, I do like the, the fact that you don't have to cut into the stomach at all. Um, I think that's um, a, a pretty good plus, especially if you've got new surgeons, people who are like, you know, how deep do I go? Which layer am I in? Um, so there's a potential advantage. Um, I think from a difficulty standpoint, it's probably going to be fairly similar to a regular belt loop or the incisional. Incisional is probably still a teensy bit technically easier, but it, it depends. You might be like, but I don't want to cut into the, the serosa of the stomach at all. What if I go, you know, so I can see that. The um, the circumcostal is, I think everybody would agree the technically most challenging, but even that one's not that much more difficult than the others. The take home is that they all work. They all work. Um, and if you're good at them, th your complications are going to be generally pretty low. Um, and so that's always my advice is like, pick one that you like for whatever reason, it doesn't matter, flip a coin and then get good at that. Um, and, and that's what most people do. Most surgeons have a way they do it and that's how they do it. And I think that that's a good reason until somebody comes along with one. And it's going to be really hard to come along with a procedure to replace any of the other ones because they all work. They all are effective and they are all associated with pretty darn low rates of complications. Now, when I say they work, how do we know they work? So no recurrence oh, of no the GDV. Yeah. No recurrence of GDV. Does that mean the Pepsi works? No. Um, 
Yeah, I guess you don't really know. Right, because the Pepsi yeah, could yeah, break it, down and they it just could break, but it's didn't get a GDV. Right, right. So, you know, but at the end of the day, what we care about is do they get a GDV? Um, you know, if the the thought, the worry, and the reason why it's like malpractice to go in and correct a GDV and not do a PEXI is because you've already kind of stretched some of those ligaments and the worry is that the risk of re um, uh, retorsing is high. But I actually don't know if there's any studies to support that. Like, I don't know if anybody has ever, like, I don't think it's, I'm not going to test this. Like, I don't think it's a, a study worth doing. You're already in there. You're already derotating PEXI them. Let's prevent this from happening. It just makes logical sense. But I don't know if we know what the expected recurrence rate would be if you didn't PEXI them. Like, I have no idea if, if we even have that study. Um, and I can't imagine anybody volunteering to do that study. Um, it seems like a terrible idea. So um, it, did it work? Yeah, as best we can tell. And I don't have any reason to doubt that it worked, um, but we are sort of basing it indirectly on the fact that they didn't get a GDV, um, which doesn't mean the PEXI is in place. Now, I will also tell you anecdotally, <clears throat> if you, you know, over the years you have animals that have had PEXIs and then you do radiographs for some other reason, you can tell the PEXIs in place, right? Like. My anecdotal experience is that when I say these work, they work. Like I don't, I've never come across an animal in my, um, in my career where either it's had a repeat GDV, they get GDs, but they don't get the V or that we have an animal that has had an, a previously known PEXI that we had radiographs for some other reason. It was like, uh, that PEXI doesn't, it, like it, it looks normal. The anatomy looks, and it shouldn't look normal if they've had a PEXI. Um, I, I've never come across that. Now I could have unknowingly like an animal that had a pexy and I didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like more often than not, I see an animal is like, well, that looks weird. And then we go back, did your dog ever get a pexy? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, good. Cause it looks like mm -hmm. he does on these rats. Um, so we are just, I just wanna point that out that that is an indirect assessment of the, the success of the pexy. We are implying that the pexy has worked because they didn't get a GDV within a year. Now how, you know, these dogs, Presumably many of them lived a lot longer and some of them they had, um, they had follow up beyond a year, but it was a minimum of a year follow up. So like what happens in three years, what happens in four years, five years, six years. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying this to like question this. I think that this would probably work just fine. And, and I think it's a really cool um, surgical option. Just want to point those, those little questions out. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Something that I did appreciate is that these authors included really clear images of what was being done. And I was confused right. at first because um, DVM 360 has a video of what I'm assuming now is just a belt loop gastropexy. And I missed that it lacked the modified and it was just a cartoon, but it really helps me visualize because that's something I struggle with a lot is um, with surgery related things is it's you know, I think most people would argue it's a lot easier to see than it is to try and read and figure out what's going on. And so I can see now how those two differ. And yeah. Dr. Connor, please correct me if I'm wrong. This is a really fuzzy memory. But I remember someone teaching me last summer that one of the things you have to be careful of when you're doing gastropexies is that you're not creating an obstruction. And so I maybe that's for something else that I'm being con like I'm just mixing things up, which is very possible. Well, it seems like good advice. Like you need to be aware of where you're putting things, like where's the mm -hmm. mesentery, where are the loops of intestine? Cause you are moving the anatomy from its normal position, right? Um, mm -hmm. So you're pulling the stomach to the right side. 
um, and you're going to be tacking it to the body wall. So you do need to like make sure that you haven't inadvertently, you know, things are definitely untwisted and that you don't like loop some intestine or some mesentery in um, when you're doing this. It's usually not too bad because again, you've derotated them. The, the anatomy should be back to where it was and it should have mm -hmm. settled down because you've done the rest of your explore. Um, so yes, important to be mindful of. Is that like something, a common thing that people are like not paying attention? They're like, I would say no. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> But yeah, I mean, like, cause you're going to run the bowel, you're going to go through and make sure you know where everything is. And um, <clears throat> again, when you immediately, immediately after derotating, everything's still like all puffed up and in the way and, and mm -hmm. really kind of hard to, like I said, it's nice to have somebody pass the, the orogastric tube, even if you've already, um, you know, done like a, 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 a troke or something like that. I, I personally always like to have an orogastric tube in place um, at the time of surgery to really empty the mo most of the air and, and fluid out. And then it does mm -hmm. settle down quite quite a bit um, by the time you're, at least for me, by the time I'm done with my um, explore. And so it's much easier, like toward the end, like when you get ready to start doing your pexy, the anatomy looks more like it should. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't feel like that's a huge, like, oh my gosh, people are always like looping things around where they shouldn't. Um, I think it's, mm -hmm. it's still an important thing to keep in mind. You certainly <laughs> don't want to make things worse um, with your surgery, but is that like a, a super common complication? I would say no. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just something I... <laughs> Yeah, it's just something I wanted to ask because this seems like a much more, I mean, it clearly works based on this report, but it just, this seems like a more drastic shift of the stomach. I don't know. I imagine that having to take a whole fold of skin is, or fold of the stomach is going to move the stomach a lot more than just a flap, but maybe that's just because I'm no. either way, okay. the stomach wall is kissing the, the body wall. Like they are right, right up against each other. So like, is it a small amount more arguably sure? Um, but like when you do an incisional, like you're going to do two or three centimeters, maybe four centimeters length. And so when you're done, you're going to have, you know, the stomach is right up against the body wall with it, you know, three, four centimeters sewn together. Um, that's going to be very similar to this. So I would say it's, it's not, I understand what you're saying. Like, it feels like a lot more and it's a lot more tissue. Um, and it did look like a big chunk of stomach tissue on the, in the photos they had in the, in the mm -hmm. um, article, but I'd say it's probably a similar amount of displacement and contact, um, between the stomach wall and the body wall as you would in, in most of the techniques. I think they're all going to be pretty similar. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Not no, having seen hard. a lot of these it's yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. And, well, and being the, such the, a visual the photos learner. were really good, but they're also like right there zoomed in. And so sometimes it's mm -hmm. hard to get the full perspective. There was a couple of them where I was like, wait, what is that? Oh, okay. Okay. Like I had to orient myself mm -hmm. a couple of times too. Um, but yeah, it was a cool study. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always curious. They didn't, they didn't tell us this, but I was like, what, who came up with this the first time? Like who tried this the first time? And like, whose whose dog was the first one to be like, we don't know if this is going to work, but let's give it a shot. You know, cause mm -hmm. they did it on a hundred dogs before it was published. My guess is they've been doing this technique for a lot longer before that. And then somebody was like, wait, what are you doing? And they're like, you don't do it this way. And they're like, we need to publish this. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't know, but I always, I'm like, I want a little more history. Tell me where you guys got this idea from. Um, mm -hmm. They didn't share. We might have to email the authors and ask them. <laughs> Um, all right. So you're in on uh, surgery and you're doing GDV. I know this is, you're going to have to just really imagine this, but Scott, I know this is something you're going to want to do. What technique are you going to use? You know, I, I really might do this modified belt loop. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, at least to start out as a new surgeon, like, like you had said, you know, there's, there's a certain level of, of, uh, 
intimidation by having to cut into the stomach. Yeah. Now, I guess you may be anyway because of necrosis. Yeah. Um, so this is just an additional incision that you're doing, but uh, it, it, it seemed pretty interesting to me uh, when yeah. I read it. That's why I really wanted to dive into this too, is, uh, yeah. so, geez, this looks pretty good. It does. I mean, I've yeah. only ever done incisional gastropexies. That's all I've ever mm -hmm. done. <laughs> but I was kind of like, well, maybe I'd try this one. <laughs> um, right. You know, because I, I agree. I think it's kind of cool. And, um, it, it, you know, it's nice to not have to cut into another piece of tissue. Like, I just think that's kind of fun. And um, right. so one thing, yeah. one thing that, uh, again, from our surgery course, um, you don't go down, if you're doing incisional, you don't go down to the submucosal level because I thought that we were taught that that was the holding layer. Well, so, sorry, I don't know if I said, don't go through that layer, <laughs> right? You're not going through that layer. Okay, okay, but you're still, you're still um, to suturing to it? Yes, so, yes. That, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that's a little semantics, but you're right. Yeah, so you're, right. you okay. want to see it, but you don't want to go through it. Yes, okay, yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, um, but that's always tricky too, right? Like we, it's always like, oh, it's really yeah. obvious. You'll know where that layer is. It's like, Whoa. no, <laughs> I, I certainly didn't on the one we did on no. a cadaver. I'm like, I, I think I'm oh, there. Especially but... in a cadaver. Yeah. yeah oh, I had no idea. But even in a live patient, I'm always like, oh, I was like, okay, I'm pretty good about the, the serosa layer. Okay. That one I'm good. Then this is mucosa. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. But if I go too far, then I'm in the stomach and I definitely got don't want to do that. Like it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's, that's another thing that makes this really appealing. And then like, if there is some areas that you're like, I think these are viable, but I'm a little bit nervous cutting into areas that aren't super healthy is also terrifying. Um, and so with this, um, if now, if it's super friable, even just grabbing that tissue would be kind of scary, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, after reading this, I was like, well, I would consider this because I think the the standard belt loop <laughs> seems really hard to get like my orientation right and like where I'm going to cut this and I'm like it's going to be all weird and it always looks pretty in the in the photos when other people do it but I'm like I don't think mine is going to look like that so I've never done the belt loop and I've never done the circumcostal I've only done incisional but this is what I would consider doing yeah I feel like yeah, I, I think I'd be between those two the yeah. others definitely seemed a little bit more uh, technical for for me anyway yeah yeah mm -hmm. um what do you think Haley <laughs> yeah I, I think your internal lot. medicine residency and for some reason you got stuck in a GDV surgery. I'm not sure why. I think the less <laughs> cuts I'd have to make the better. So I can see the appeal in this. Yeah. And I do from my surgery rotation. Um, I remember being able allowed to palpate the stomach and I do remember, and I believe it was the stomach, but there's a distinct slip with the serosa muscular layer. And so if I use that as a guide, I think I would be comfortable doing maybe the incisional um, but I can't see the appeal in this, um, in not having to make another cut. Uh, so we'll you know, see, if right, I am, you guys can report back <laughs> Yeah, right. to, to be not determined more likely than Haley, but yeah, <laughs> awesome. If I have to do it, then, you know, okay. Yeah. I just right? hope I'm not alone, especially. Well, and it's always, yeah, exactly. Whoever's helping you and what are they comfortable with? Right. Yeah. Um, very good. Very good. Well, hey, this was, it was really good. It's always good to talk about GDV. Um, it's such, you know, an important disease and, um, and maybe what, you know, Scott in particular, you know, since you want to do some surgery, maybe you'll be doing more prophylactic rather than reactive mm -hmm. gastropexies. And then, um, you know, considering what technique you want to try to perfect um, when you do that. So it's, it's fun to have another option on the table. <laughs> I'll be curious 
you'll have to report back if you get to try it. Um, I sure would. But sure yeah, would. Here, I'll let you guys know too if I if I get an opportunity to get in on a GBV here in the future. Um, see, I feel like what'll happen though in the moment, I'll be like, nah, I'm gonna go back to what I know. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It, it, like say, doing it prophylactically is probably a lot better yeah. way rather than. Well, then you plan, right? You under fire. It, you have the pictures in front of you. You're like, okay, I know what I'm gonna do. Versus the GDV, you're like, I'm just gonna do what I'm comfortable with right now. Yeah. Um, so that's probably like knowing myself, that's what I would do. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Maybe I'll have somebody like, hey. Go print me that article and bring me some photos <laughs> and, and we'll consider this in the moment, right. but awesome. Do we know, is this modified approach? Is this such a new approach that like, would it even be in textbooks or anything like Tobias or anything? I or... So. No, I think okay. you'd have to pull up this article with the photos to my knowledge. Again, I'm not exactly rereading surgery textbooks on the, on the yeah. routine. Um, and I don't have any recent editions, but it might be something that comes up in newer editions that come out of those, of those mm -hmm. textbooks. Um, and I don't know when the most recent, I, I don't know. Um, I yeah. have all my old ones and I have not updated the editions, but we can, we can talk to the surgeons and see, um, you know, if they have, if they have any thoughts on this, but, um, mm -hmm. that's why, that's one of the things that's really helpful that they provided the photos, um, to kind of be like, okay, this is what we're doing and this is how it differs. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, no, as far as I know, this, this is, this is the description of it. Um, but it came out in, what year did this one come out? 2018. So 18. Yeah. So, you know, it's conceivable that future, you know, any surgery textbooks or updated editions that come out could include this. Um, and I think that mm -hmm. they, you know, it would be a reasonable thing to include in a, in a future edition when you're talking about um, PEXI techniques. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but if you went to an old Tobias, it's probably not going to be there. Okay. Good to know. Good question. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Um, Haley, thanks for coming back to the podcast, Scott. It was great to have you. Yeah, um, thank you very much. This was yeah. awesome. I, I mm -hmm. hope you guys will, will come back again. Haley, Definitely. You've already signed up for another one, haven't you? Yeah, I got, I'll, I I'm going to see if I can do more. It's just yep. got to see how the weeks play out. So no, yeah, I'll awesome. be back. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank good you very you much. All. Yeah. Enjoy the rest it's of your summer. Great summers. to see you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Right, thank you. Bye.